Well, again, a warm welcome to each of you on this uh, beautiful July 4th weekend. Amen. It's been a beautiful day and so glad you're here and we welcome all of you. Um, we continue our sermon series on the case. And as we do, uh, we have been looking at the parables of Jesus over these past weeks. Uh, four weeks ago, Pastor Clayton talked about the sower and the seed, and then we talked about the parable of the talents, and then last week it was the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then today we look at the parable of the three lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Uh, and so it's, it's been a really powerful story. Parables are stories that we're often told. Jesus told them all the time. Luke has the most of them. And these parables uh, seem like a story here, but then we go deeper into meaning and expression, and that it's actually much more challenging than it first appears. And so over today, we're going to talk about these parables, these three lost parables, and what they say to us and our faith as we follow Jesus. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for the word, both sung and read and prayed. We thank you for this July 4th weekend as we come and celebrate the birthday of our nation. We thank you for these stories of Jesus which speak deeply into our hearts and call us to a much more faithful response as disciples. Lord, help us to hear today these three stories, these three parables, a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. What do they say to us today? We're thankful, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you've ever been lost. Anybody ever been lost? Maybe you've been on a walk and you got lost. Maybe you were at Woodfield Mall and got lost. I don't know. Uh, maybe you were driving somewhere and you got lost. It's a little harder to get lost now with Google Maps or Waze, right? Or GPS guidance, you know. But even it can kind of mislead you sometimes. Uh, one of my favorite things is people get lost uh, all the time and get confused with our address and 401 West Dundee in Wheeling. That's the new th uh, major theater. So one day we uh, were here prior to the pandemic and a truck pulled up and began to unload this massive popcorn machine. And he said, this is your popcorn machine. And we said, well, we would love to have it, but it's not our popcorn machine. And I said, I think you're lost. And he was like, no, this is 401 West Dundee. I said, it is 401 West Dundee, but this is Buffalo Grove, not Wheeling. He was lost. Almost thought I had a popcorn machine, right? So it's interesting that we can get lost. And uh, even I get lost in this building still 10 years later. It's a beautiful building. But if you get in a circle, you can just keep going, right? And new people say that all the time. I think I've been here before. And they have, right? And maybe you've been lost uh, on a journey. Maybe you've been lost. And maybe it's more symbolic. Maybe you feel lost uh, in your life. Maybe you feel lost about what your next steps are. Maybe you're at a juncture in your life and you feel some sense of loss. All of that comes to play in these stories of lost. But what's important in these stories is also the gift of being found, right? And the joy of being found and the, the celebration of being found. I had to vote this week, and I don't know about you, I always put my voter registration card somewhere, but I cannot find it. And I wanted to find it, and I searched and searched, and I'm terrible about just dumping drawers and all that kind of stuff. And when I found it, I was thrilled that I had finally discovered where it was. And maybe you've had that experience too. This past week, we had vacation Bible school. Almost 50 kids involved for four nights. Same theme. Uh, on the case, they were discovering the parables just as we have been for the four weeks. And uh, the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade group was the largest group. 
And they, were, uh, they learned to do music and they did Bible stories, but they also played some fun games. And on uh, Monday, they played a game called Sardines. Now, I don't know if any of you played Sardines before. A few people have. This is how it goes. So uh, two people go and hide somewhere, and once they're hidden, then the rest of the group begins to try to find them, okay? And when they find them, they pack in like, oh, you're very good. Yeah, you're really on it, right? They pack in like sardines. The first people to find them are the winners, so they get to hide next, and then everyone else comes and packs in until the final person does, and then that person uh, is, you know, basically lifted up as the last one, right? So anyway, there were several rounds of that, but eventually two girls, Emily and Sophia, were hiding, and they went to hide. And when they had hidden, then we said to the group, you can go find them. You know, we're trying to create this connection to the parable of seeking and finding, right? And so the kids kind of take off to the building looking for uh, Emily and Sophia, and they cannot find them. Because honestly, Sophia and Emily hid so well we could not find them, right? They had hid very well. And so these kids are just keep coming and circling around. Have you seen them? And I said, no, we haven't seen them. But internally, I'm like, I don't know where they are, right? We could not find them. Eventually, we heard a little cry of glee, which said to me, somebody found them. They had hidden in the nursery in the cabinets. This body would never fit there. But anyway, uh, they had hidden in the cabinets, and the first group found them. And when we got there, they were so elated that they had found the two that had been lost. And there was this great sense of joy. And so as we talked about that afterwards, about what it's like to find somebody who's lost, all of the kids talked about how fun it was to seek them out and to find them. The stories today that Jesus tells are about both being lost and also being found. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn in the New Testament to Luke chapter 15. Now, prior to this story, uh, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus has been teaching. He's been confronted by religious authorities. He ends with calling the church and us to faith like salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, it, it's how can its saltiness be restored? He's talking about being faithful. And then we come to the, the chapter 15. Now, those first four verses say a lot about what Jesus is doing. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. Now, I want you to hear that. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to listen to Jesus. We already get a sense about Jesus' ministry. Tax collectors worked for the Roman government. They collected more than they probably should have. They were often known to be corrupt. And according to Jewish law, they were unclean. And here they're coming to Jesus. And then the word sinners covers a host of people, including a number of unclean people. And all of them are coming to listen to Jesus. So already the listeners are on edge. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and even eats with them. Now let's talk about those groups of people because they've come up through all of our parables. Pharisees are one sect of leaders in the time of Jesus. They emerged about 150 AD and became a very forceful group of folks during Jesus' period in Judaism. Pharisees were keepers of the law. They believed the written and oral law must be followed to the T. And they could not go either way, waffle in any way that there was any grace. If you were not in line with the written and oral law, 
then you are out, right? They also are big advocates for resurrection of the dead and eternal life, and they continually provided leadership, and they're kind of a litmus test in Jesus' day. The second group, which doesn't appear in this story, are the Sadducees. They were mostly concerned about the written law only. They didn't have much to say about the oral law, though they probably commented. They were very much about keeping the written law, the Torah, to the T. But they, unlike the Pharisees, did not believe in resurrection of the dead. And so they and the Pharisees were often at odds with each other. Then there was another group who is mentioned today called the scribes. We talked about them last week. The scribes were basically the lawyers. They were the ones who wrote down the law. They were the ones who made rulings about the law. They were the ones who had something to say about the law and held up the law. So it's these three sects, Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes that Jesus is often dealing with. And in today's story, the scribes and the Pharisees are grumbling, okay? Now, this word, grumbling, is, is an okay translation. But really, the Greek translation is murmuring, right? We don't use that word very much. But they were murmuring. And if you go to the Greek version of the Old Testament, you'll find that word. Remember when the Israelites had been led out of Egypt and oppression and were in the wilderness and they were complaining, they were murmuring, it's the same word. This kind of complaint they had against Moses is the same kind of murmuring, same kind of complaining, same kind of disconnect from the Pharisees and scribes. And their big issue is not only that Jesus welcomes sinners and those who are unclean, but he eats with them. And, and you know in Judaism, Table fellowship is very important, right? The meal is important. When we sit at a table with someone, we're saying we're connected, right? I mean, I don't know about you. I can say I know somebody or be connected to somebody, but when I eat with them, something happens, right? A meal changes things. Like when we celebrate with families, we don't just gather. We often eat together, right? Because that's what we do to build community. And Jesus was no different. And think about Judaism. A lot of the the festivals and days of celebration are around meals, Passover in particular. It's about eating together. So Jesus is not only welcoming people on the outside, he's not only welcoming the unclean, he's not only hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, but he's eating with them. And that really gets the Pharisees and scribes upset. So Jesus knows there's all this murmuring going on, all this complaining, all this angst. So he tells them a parable. The first parable, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now, this is the first story. It also appears in the gospel of Matthew. And I want you to think about this. Uh, first of all, uh, in the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture, shepherds were lifted up a lot, right? Uh, God is considered a shepherd. Shepherds were important. Uh, King David was a shepherd, right? The Lord is my... Right. So it's, it's, a, it's a common image of God, and it's, it's a revered image, and it's a revered position, right? But in Jesus' time, by Jesus' time, shepherds had become a little shady, if you will. They were often declared unclean because they were living in the fields with the sheep, so they didn't pass the law. 
They often sometimes were not honest and occasionally would take a sheep and maybe have a barbecue that they shouldn't have had, or maybe they sold the sheep. You know, so sometimes the shepherds were not lifted up as the most moral folks. So for Jesus to lift up a shepherd image already creates even more murmuring. You see what I'm saying? But what's fascinating too is a hundred sheep's a pretty big flock, right? I know you folks are experts on sheep, but uh, you know I looked it up, and a hundred would have been a, a very viable flock, right? And it probably meant that that this was worth some money, right? So I want you to think about it. I mean, I grew up raising sheep on a farm. If you have a hundred sheep and you're in the wilderness and they're grazing, and one of those sheep gets lost, at least in my business plan, leaving the 99 in the wilderness to go find the one is a bad idea, right? I mean, let's talk about the wilderness. There are wolves, there are predators, there are other shepherds from other flocks, there are thieves, you know what I'm saying? So sorry about you, but we're going to keep the 99 intact. But Jesus tells this story that the shepherd realizes one is lost, and he leaves the 99, and he particularly says, in the wilderness. He doesn't bring them back, put them in the barn, right? He leaves them in the wilderness to go search for who's lost. And then what's really odd, I find this very odd, he finds him, he puts him around his neck. I don't know if you've ever seen that image of Jesus with the sheep around him. It's that, that's the image. And he walks him back, and they get back to the flock, and then when they get back, uh, the, the shepherd says, he calls all of his friends, sends out an Evite, I found my lost sheep, so we're going to have a big party. Now, I think that's odd, don't you? I mean, I, I, I know we've all had pets that maybe got lost or we've lost some things. I mean, I just can't imagine myself saying to the whole church, join me tonight for a big meal, you know, because Fluffy's found, right? You know what I'm saying? It's just that kind of thing. But, but this is kind of what Jesus is talking about. And then he finishes up with these words. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, turns in a new direction than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, who do not need to turn their life around. Well, then he moves to another parable. Or, what about a woman having 10 silver coins? Now, the word here is drachma. It's one day's wages. She has 10 days wages. For a woman who's single in a male-dominated society, that's a lot of money. It's an important amount of money. And it says if she loses one of those drachma, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, she probably has a dirt floor, and search carefully until she finds it? So here again, the sheep got lost on his own, but the coin just, you know, it's not the coin's fault, right? So the coin's just lost, and yet she lights a lamp, sweeps until she finds it, and the same thing. And when she finds the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So that's an interesting story too, right? The coin is found, and she's rejoicing, and she too throws a party, right? She probably had to spend the coin for the party supplies, right? I think that's funny, right? But it's all about rejoicing for those who are lost. So those two stories, the coin stories only in Luke, then lead the foundational work for the final story, all of what I'm about lost. So in verse 11, Jesus tells the third parable. There was a man who had two sons. So we often call this the prodigal son, right? But it's really about two sons and about a father. The younger of them said to his father, Father, 
give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. So what the younger son has decided, there are two sons. You know this, but I'll just remind you. Older sons in Hebrew law get the double portion of the inheritance. Then whatever's left, a third goes to each son that exists, right? Well, in this case, that would be the older son getting the double portion of the inheritance, and then the younger son would get a third, right? You see what I'm saying? Now, what's fascinating is that really is only available to you when the father dies. There are exceptions, like if you're getting married and the dowry's not great in the ancient world, you might persuade your father to release some of it so that you could marry and have something to start with. But you wouldn't just receive it. And so this was helpful to me. If the son is asking for this, he is basically considering his father dead. You see what I'm saying? He's asking his father to die, basically, symbolically, so that he can receive the money. And according to the law and according to everything we read, it was a bad idea to give the money up early. But the father, this says something about the father, he divides the property between the two sons. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, including this inheritance, and he traveled to a distant country where he must have cashed it in, and he squandered his property in dissolute living. And uh, what that means is the son left his home, cashed everything in, moved to you know, a really hard and party place, you know, kind of out of control place. It'd be like going from here to Peoria, you know what I mean? It's that kind of place, right? And so he goes and, and dissolute, we don't, we don't really use that word, it was scandalous living, prostitutes, gambling, uh, frivolous money spending, you know, too many hamburgers at five guys. I don't know what it is, right? But it's totally out of control. When he had spent everything, and that was a lot of money, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So I can translate that this way. When he had spent everything and things were not great, then there was a pandemic. Get it, right? I mean, things took a turn. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. Now, for you and me, because I don't know about you, I like bacon, I like sausage, so it's not a big deal for me. But according to Hebrew law, the hearers of this parable would have been shocked. Oh, no, not the pigs, right? In fact, Hebrew law is very clear. You don't eat pork, you don't raise pigs, you don't work with pigs, you don't even get near pigs. You see what I'm saying? So here's this son who has really messed up, and now he's not only around pigs, he's feeding and living with pigs. So he's at the bottom of the barrel. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods, probably carob bean pods, that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So here's this guy who is completely lost, who spent every ounce he's had. The pandemic's coming, just got this lousy job. He's raising pigs. He would even eat what they're eating. This is a bad situation. And maybe some of you, like me, I know you're not going to admit it, deep down, right in here, I kind of go, well-deserved, right? I think, you know, you've made your bed, right? We say that all the time. So here he is. Well, then he comes to himself in verse 17. We're not for sure what that means. Is he fully aware of what happens? Does he realize he's going nowhere? I don't know what happens. But when he comes to himself, he says, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, but here I am dying of hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Treat me like one of your hired hands. So as he's sitting there feeding the pigs and eating what they're eating and starving and realizing his life's a mess and that he's lost, he gets an idea. He will go to his father. He will admit that he's failed. He will say he's not worthy to be his son and he'll come on as a hired hand and not be restored. You see where that is? So according to scripture in verse 20, the younger son went to his father But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Now, this is where the story takes an interesting turn. So here's the younger son traveling back from Peoria. He has nothing. He smells like a pig. It's not good, right? And as he's coming far off, his father sees him and his heart is filled with compassion. What does that say about the father? The father's been looking, right? He's been waiting. He's been searching. He's not mad. He's not sitting in the house. He's not avoiding it. He's not doing any of that. He's been looking every day for the son's return. And that is just so antithetical to the way culture works. Like, we we believe people deserve what they get, right? But here, the father is looking on the horizon, ready to receive him. And that's exactly what he does. Scripture tells us that he ran to the younger son. And in the ancient world, men who had land and who had power and who were established did not run because it was embarrassing. They should never run. But this man is so filled with compassion and so filled with joy that he runs to his son. He embraces him. He kisses him. It's not at all what we expected. Remember, he took the inheritance basically saying, Dad, you're dead, right? And yet, the father's looking, searching, welcoming, filled with compassion, hugs and kisses, It's hard. It's a hard story for me. I don't know about you. It's just like, what's going on here? And then the father does something interesting. He doesn't hire him. He restores him. The kid says, Father, I've sinned against you in heaven. I'm not worthy to be your son. Please hire me. I'll go on indeed.com. I'll apply and I'll be a hired hand, right? And his father says, no, 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 no. Puts a ring on his finger, reestablishes him. Sandals on his feet, pulls out the robe from his closet. And then he does this weird thing. He says, let's kill the fatted calf and have a big barbecue and invite all the neighbors because my son who was lost is now found. And so they do. It's a big party. And I don't know about you, there's a little angst for me because I'm the guy who follows the rules, right? So it's just really hard for me. So as much as we get critical of the older brother who now enters the story, I really like this guy, right? I get him, right? So the older brother, we're told in Scripture, has been out in the fields. He's working, right? And if you know the compound of the ancient world, the owner's house would have been in the center, and there might have been some outer houses and barns and some other things, and so the fields are further out. So I can just imagine the older son's had a long day. It's been a hot day. You know, he's been out in the fields working, and he comes to the edge of the compound, and he begins to hear this music, right? And then he begins to hear laughter, and then he begins to realize they're dancing, and that some DJ is in his father's house. And I'm sure he has no concept of what's going on, right? So he catches one of the servants, and he said, hey, what's up? Nothing's on my calendar. I checked my phone. There's nothing planned for today. What's happening? And the servant says, well... Get this, your younger brother's back from Peoria. He has nothing, 
but your father's fully welcomed him, and they've killed the fatted calf, and we're having a celebration. There's grandma's potato salad and cherry pie and everything you can imagine. Your father is celebrating that your brother has come back. Now, before we get real judgy, I get the older son. Scripture says he's mad. Of course he's mad, right? He's so upset with his father that he decides to sit in the, the yard and not go into the party. He refuses to go in. I don't know. I know you're not going to raise your hands, but anybody relate to that? Like, do you think, yeah, I get that, right? Well, the father learns that the older son hasn't come in, right? And uh, so eventually he makes his way out to the yard. And he said, son, your brother's back. Why don't you come in? And, and it's fascinating how the older brother responds. He, he's angry and he doesn't want to go in. And his father came out and he pleaded with him. This is not just an ask. He's pleading with him to come in and be a part of the celebration. But the older son answers his father, listen. For all these years, I've been working like a slave for you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you've never given me even a goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. I mean, he just, he says, I've done everything you, you said. I, 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 I went to school. I had a 4.0. I, I went to University of Illinois. I did everything you said that you wanted me to do, right? And here we are. You're celebrating him. You wouldn't even get a goat for me to have a barbecue with my friends. That's a tough situation. And then the father says these words. He says, he says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, and now he is found. It's a powerful story. The father is a sign of who God is for us. Now, if you've ever been lost, literally, or if you've been lost in your life, like you've made mistakes, a relationship ended, you betrayed somebody, you broke covenant, whatever it was that you've done, and you feel lost, you get this great sense of joy that the God we follow is on the horizon looking for you and me, right? Jesus tells this story for the Pharisees but remember, Luke includes the story for the church, all three of them. Because too often, the church, you and me, can get pretty judgy and difficult and self-righteous. Amen? Or at least I can. I know you're all very sacred, holy people, but right, you know what I'm saying? And we can become focused on what we need and who we are and what it, making it about us instead of looking to the horizon, sweeping till we find it, leaving the 99 behind. Luke wants us to hear this story of Jesus as the church so that we're challenged to always be seeking the lost and restoring the broken and forgiving the sinner and restoring life and wholeness and being an instrument and a place where Christ can offer salvation and transformation. Amen. And so these stories are, are, are good stories, and they're stories that I love, but, you know, they're stories that just challenge me to no end because Jesus is saying to me again and again and again and again, James, it's not about you. It's about who is up on the horizon, who's lost and needs to be found.
And so when I'm lost, I'm grateful. But I'm challenged when I need to be seeking and searching and sweeping and saving. So as we come together as the people of Jesus, remember these stories. Maybe they've challenged you. Maybe they've restored you. But we worship a God who's always looking, seeking, sweeping, keeping, holding, even when it doesn't make sense. We call that grace, unconditional love, the love of Jesus that stands against the culture and against what we normally experience and offers restoration to all people, especially the lost.